Okay. So here's an honest question that I want to voice right away at the beginning. We're almost done with this study. Here's what I want to draw out, guys. What is the point of this exalted Christ if it only makes me feel like a greater disparity between him and me? What is the point of seeing a bigger Jesus, right? That's been our goal week after week. What's the point of seeing a bigger Jesus, a more powerful and royal king, if it only means I feel further from him? Okay, so if we were to write up a resume for Christ from what we have been studying so far this summer, and we were to lay it out next to our own, I would feel how very unlike him I am. And then I would like innately understand that I can't be in his space. I would understand in that moment that there's God's space and there's my space. I would feel this gap or almost this like incongruity. And it makes me sense, it makes me understand the problem that we addressed in our homework this week, that there is a separation between God and me. So our biggest problem in life, the problem that moves the whole grand story of the Bible forward is this, man's space is separated from God's space. This is a problem that is laid out from Genesis three on, and it's the problem that is addressed along the redemptive thread of the Bible. Okay, so this week, rather than like building up to the answer to our problem, or rather than having some big surprise moment where we all come to the conclusion, I am just gonna lay it out for you. Because you guys have done the hard work of the homework this week, and I want you guys to feel like you get credit for that. So what is the solution to there being a separation between God's space and our space? Let me hear it from you guys. Who is the solution? Good job, Jesus. Christ is the means of reconciliation. He is the means of bringing God's space to our space. Okay, but the details, guys, and and the intricacies of this, the mysteries of this truth are both intriguing and awesome and weighty. So here's the text that we studied this week. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So as you guys saw this week in your work and as you talked about in small group, Paul is referencing the temple in these verses. In these two verses, he's alluding to temple language over and over again. What I mean by that, guys, because I don't expect that to be familiar to you. He is wanting to bring to the mind of his audience these images of tabernacle, temple, priest, and sacrificial system. If you don't know about those things, guys, it's okay. Like if you're sitting here and you're like, man, was that in VBS? I just, I don't remember that. I really wanna make sure if you feel like you are the only person in the room who is just so confused, you are not, and it is okay. What we did this week in the work was just this really quick overview. We barely skimmed the surface of it. My hope for you tonight is not to give you all the answers, but to help you connect some dots and then to create a hunger to learn more about it. But for now, here's what I wanna ask, what we ask over and over again. Why is Paul doing this? 
Why would Paul think it strategic to allude to the temple system in Colossians? Well, it it pulls us back into the Old Testament, doesn't it? Just like every other week, it pulls us back. And what he does, guys, can you see this rubber band? Okay, right now, this isn't even very threatening, right? Like this isn't gonna make much of an impact. But what if I pull it back, right? I don't have a spit wad or anything, don't worry, okay? If I pull this rubber band back, then it can have a little bit more of a, of a pal, right? A little bit more of an impact. So if Paul is pulling us back into the Old, Test, Old Testament to, to make a statement about Christ, then, then when we read these stories of the Old Testament, it's pulling it back. And, and maybe when we understand a truth about Christ, it'll be like a, a big moment for us. But you know what? This, I grew up, we've got so many weapons in my house of boys, right? From like lightsabers to just weird like gladiator toys. We shouldn't even call them toys. There's a lot of weapons in my house. And so I feel pretty versed in them. Um, Lots of Nerf guns. Also, we just got our first airsoft guns. If you haven't gotten airsoft guns, don't. They're not a good idea. Uh, They were given to us as a gift for my three boys. This, this doesn't do much for me, right? I can't, I can't get much power with this. But what Paul is doing is more like this, right? I, I don't even know how this works, actually. Look, I don't know where this came from. There's nothing in it. Don't be afraid. There's nothing in this. What is this? I want to be Katniss so bad. I wanted, I wanted this analogy to work for a bow and arrow, but it's just a slingshot. So, oh, cool. Okay. Paul pulls us, this has a point. Paul pulls us back in the Old Testament every week, right? This week, guys, it's not a rubber band that he's pulling back to create tension. It's more like this slingshot. As he pulls us back into the Old Testament, into tabernacle language and priest language and sacrificial lamb, he's creating this tension, okay? He's pulling us back, creating this tension so that he can, bam, show us the splendor and the majesty of Christ to teach us something very important about Christ, okay? The truths about Christ this week are only gonna carry their intended weight if we see them as the culmination of these Old Testament themes, okay? So with that being said, I actually want us to start somewhere else. I want you to actually open up your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 6. Here's my thought. Here's why I think this is worth our time going here, guys. I wonder and I hope that if we start with something familiar, that it will help us connect with something new or maybe something that feels obscure. Okay, so in Matthew 6, we find the Lord's Prayer. So find verse 9 of Matthew 6. I'm reading from the ESV. I actually want you guys to read with me. We're in Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 9. We're going to read 9 and 10 together. Okay, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Great, okay, it's it's pretty familiar to a lot of us, right? A lot of you could have done that without turning in your Bibles to it, but do you ever think about that? What 
what is Jesus telling us to pray? What is Jesus telling us to ask God? He's saying this, your kingdom come, God, bring your kingdom on earth. God, bring heaven to earth. We are asking him to close the gap between God's space and our space, between his space and ours. Would you close that gap? Guys, why would Jesus tell us to pray this? Why would he tell us to do that? Why would he? So let's, here's what we're gonna do for the rest of our time. We're gonna answer that question. So we are going to march through the Old Testament first to discover the answer. Then we're gonna look at how Jesus is the means of reconciliation. And then we are gonna land with looking at our identity. What does this truth about Christ mean for our life? So let's start in Genesis like we have almost every week. In your homework, you went to Eden, right? And you saw that God's original design, the Bible begins with God's space overlapping man's space. Okay, think of a Venn diagram. Okay, we've got that space of overlap. You saw that God was involved with creation. You saw that God was walking in the garden. So originally there was an overlap between God's space and ours, but sin changed things. So mankind who was created to be these royal image bearers, these priests of Eden, if you will, they were supposed to bear the image of the heavenly father, but now because of sin, they have to leave, right? They are evicted, they are banished, and it's so sad. The way that it's written, it paints this image of them being driven out against their will, and they're even being flaming swords to block their way back in. They cannot be in direct proximity to a holy God because of their sin. And so they, Adam, and all those born under him have to leave and they head east into the wilderness. Okay, well, we're gonna pick up the story a couple chapters later. In Genesis chapter 11, it's the story of the Tower of Babel. Generations have passed and mankind now puts their minds together and they come up with an idea. They decide, hey, we will build a tower that reaches to heaven. They're like, we have an idea. Let's make a bridge from earth to heaven. And maybe if you did the Genesis study with us last fall, you remember this, but even their phrasing to each other reveals their motivations. They say, come, let us. Come, let us. Do you guys remember this? Let us. What does that sound like? Genesis 1 where the triune God is saying, using that same phrase, let us make man in our image. They're echoing the phrasing of God. It's like man is acting like he's God. Come, let us build a city. Let's build a tower with its tops and heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. They're saying we will close this gap that was birthed from Adam. Because the problem here, even if it looks seemingly innocent, is that it has evil roots. It has its roots in pride and in arrogance. So this big tower that they built, it was a house of cards as the people took it upon themselves saying, we will make a way to heaven. It was birthed in man's efforts, the blueprint thought up by them. But it didn't really work. Because if you look at this story, you actually read that God says he had to come down to see what man was up to. God then confuses their language. It's like he's saying, no, 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 no. This isn't how it works. 
You don't come to me, I come to you. You don't strong arm your way back into Eden, people. You don't just work your way up to heaven. Well, let's keep moving through the Old Testament and pick up on this theme a couple chapters later in Genesis chapter 28. Genesis 28, starting in verse 10, is our next pit stop through the Old Testament. Here we find a man named Jacob. Jacob was the grandson of Abraham. And he is also traveling east, and he is headed out to live among his relatives to find a wife. I'm going to start reading in verse uh, 11. He came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. Okay, so angels going up and down a ladder all the way from earth to heaven. And it says, what, that the Lord stood above it. Do you hear a little bit of Colossians language there? He, God introduces himself to Jacob and he gives him the promises that he had already given to Abraham and then to Isaac. And here's Jacob's response. It's beautiful. When he awakens, he says, how awesome is this place? Surely the Lord is in this place. This is the gate of heaven. It's like Jacob is saying, this is where heaven and earth intersect. This is where God dwells. Do you guys see what's happening here from our last story to Jacob's story? God is redoing the story of Babel. He is saying to Jacob, Jacob, this is how you get to me. I make the ladder. I make the gate. I build to you. You don't build to God. I build to you. The house of God, where God comes to man, where he makes a way of reconciliation. He makes amends. Okay, guys, so what have we done so far? In these three quick stories, we have seen the problem, the tendency, and the hope. The problem, the separation between God and man. The tendency, I can muscle my way to God. And the hope is that God comes to us. I wonder if we should pause here before we go further, before we start piling on more thoughts and more questions, and if we just let this sink in to our daily lives, guys, could we see if maybe there's a little bit of that tendency in us, a little bit of that babble tendency in our lives? I wonder how many of you guys would say, 
that in general in life, you are feeling pretty exhausted. Right, and we tend to think first of, of the woman who is getting her master's degree and, and working a side job, or we think about the new mom, and we say, yeah, of course they're exhausted, but I'm also talking to the rest of you, those of you who are maybe emotionally exhausted as well as physically. And I wonder if this tendency is in us. So if you're the type of woman or if you're in a life right now where you're burning the candle at both ends, where you're trying to build a life and you're working yourself to the bone, could it be that you are taking on more than you were built to take on? Could it be in some lights that you are actually acting like you are God? Could it maybe even be that there is some pride or some arrogance under there that says, I'm like God, I have no limits. I can do anything. Or those of you who maybe feel emotionally exhausted, maybe your emotions are like a house of cards. You know, you can snap at any minute. It can all come crumbling down. Your temper is short. You find yourself uh, just crying a lot or, or down a lot. Could it be that your nearness with God in your mind is based on how hard you've worked to get to him? Maybe you feel like your nearness with God depends on your recent behavior, your performance. Do you see the pressure that you're living under if that's you? There's different ways that we are exhausted, both just physically, because we set no margins in our life, because we believe that everything will fall apart if we're not there and if we're not holding it together. But then there's also this emotional unhealth that we can find ourselves in, because we believe Maybe we wouldn't say it, but the way we live, we believe that every day when we wake up, we have to impress God. We have to build a life that shows him, look what I did. Look at my good deeds. Look at the absence of bad habits. Look, God, I have built up this righteousness. I should be close to you. And the problem then is we, not only are we exhausted, but it starts over the exact same way the next day. Are you tired in a way that is showing you, revealing to you maybe some wrong thinking in your own life. That you are trying to strong arm your way. You're trying to muscle your way near to God. The hope for the weary tonight, myself included, is that God comes to us. We'll look at it a little bit more in a little bit. Okay, now we find ourselves in Exodus. As we read this week, guys, this is where we kind of picked up this cord of redemption. We followed it through Genesis, picked it up in Exodus. As we were introduced to the tabernacle, we could spend a whole summer studying the tabernacle. We studied it a couple years ago. I hope some of you are able to pull from that study. But here's the tabernacle, guys. Here's what you need to know for now. It was a tent. It would later get rebuilt and, and recreated into a temple. Its blueprints came not from man, but directly from God, down to the details, the measurements, the fabric, the artwork, the furniture. That is the tabernacle. And the purpose of it is that this is where God would meet with his people. God was promising to be near to them. It's like he's saying, I'm moving into the neighborhood. So how is that even possible? How was it gonna be possible for God's space to overlap with man's space? Well, it would require suffering. 
suffering in the form of sacrifices. This overlap would require blood to be spilt. And we looked at who would execute those judgments. Who was going to represent the invisible God to the people of God? And that was the priest. Those are the three themes that we looked at this week. So right away, guys, do you see this? This tiny, this quick little snapshot in Exodus, it shows us God's promise to restore, to reveal, to redeem. Remember when we talked about that a couple weeks ago? So he's restoring his nearness through the temple. Finish my sentences if you can. He's restoring his nearness through the temple. He's revealing himself through the priest. And he's redeeming his people through the sacrifices. Let's, let's go through that one more time, guys. This is, this is powerful. He's restoring his nearness through the temple. He is revealing himself through the priest. And he's redeeming his people through the sacrifices. Okay, and guys, would you come with me one more step into this tabernacle? So if we slowed our study even more, although you probably think that's not even possible, what we would notice in this tabernacle and later the temple is it was designed to remind people of Eden. It was this place or this sanctuary where God would dwell with his people the furniture, we read, was all overlaid with gold. In Genesis, you read that the streams sparkled with gold. You would look at a stream in Eden and you could see gold in the water. The curtains in the tabernacle, they had fruit trees that were embroidered into them and angels woven into them. Just as Eden was full of fruit-bearing trees and as there were angels in Eden, and then there was the priest. The priest would wear these elaborate, these beautiful garments that spoke of royalty. And they would wear this breastplate that had these amazing jewels on them. And if you go back in Genesis and look and read for detail, you will see that those stones were found in Eden. And the priests, they were there working, right? They were trimming the candles. They were laying out the bread of the presence. They were taking the incense and burning it. They were these royal workers of God. And that should take us back to the very first priest of Eden, Adam and Eve. See guys, this is just an overview, but I want you to catch in this overview that God is making a promise. He's saying, I will restore what was lost in Eden. I will restore it. I will again provide an overlap between my space and yours. Guys, the glory of Genesis 1 and 2 would come again. All is not lost. But this system, this temple system, it would become the norm, not just for a couple of years, not just for decades, but for thousands of years. After the people landed in the promised land, they built a temple, a permanent tabernacle. There, the people of God would bring their sacrifices the priests would make the sacrifices. They followed a calendar of feasts and sacrifices. The family of Aaron served as the priest, decade after decade, century after century, year after year, guys. This was the routine. Come to the temple, pay for a sacrifice, Watch the priests spill the blood of that animal. 
and repeat. It wasn't just once in your lifetime, it was regularly. Come to the temple, pay for a sacrifice, watch as the priests spilled the blood, giving you a physical manifestation of your sin against a holy God. Can you feel how monotonous this would be? The mundaneness, can you feel the exhaustion that would come from the cycle? And then as time passed, maybe they would hear the prophets starting to promise someone who was to come, a promised king, a conqueror. But did they even really know what they were waiting for? Guys, it is so hard for us in 2019 to remember this. But the original readers, the original people doing this sacrificial system, they did not know the climax of the story like we do. Okay, they don't understand that with each sacrifice, with each day of atonement, with each Passover, with each intercession prayed by the priest, with each lamb that was killed, the tension was increasing. It was pulling back this rubber band, increasing this tension, but they did not even know what it was. They did not even understand what they were waiting for. Each year they would watch the blood be spilt or, or maybe they would see as the sun hit the gold of the temple and beamed off with glory and splendor. They did not even understand. I mean, it was more like they were looking like at a mirage in the desert, right? Where you look at the horizon and you see something, you, but you can't make it out. It's, it's kind of blurry. It's kind of vague and unclear. These people going through this year after year, their entire life, they did not even know what they were looking for. Until one night when the Son of Man, standing above all, condescends his throne. The Son of God descends the ladder that he has designed this is where the tension of the story finds its climax. This is where that rising action hits its summit, guys. Paul lays out that Jesus is the better temple. He is the better high priest. He is the better sacrificial lamb. By doing that, he is showing us that the sufficiency and the supremacy of Christ comes when he is the means of reconciliation, the agent of reconciliation. Jesus is the point of intersection between God's space and our space. Think about this, guys. Picture Jesus's life. Think about him in those adult years as he moved around from town to town doing ministry. As he moved around, it's almost like he was a portable Eden. It's like he was a tabernacle. The Bible Project guys helped me see this. Whenever he would move around, he would heal sicknesses, right? Forgive sins. And in each interaction, he was bringing the will of the Father to earth. He was bringing heaven to earth. It's like wherever Jesus healed or forgave or freed, it was like a little bit of Eden just shot forth in that moment. Heaven was touching earth wherever Jesus was. And then after he descended that ladder, he's then lifted up on a Roman cross. As those people on the day of Jesus' death 
looked at Calvary, did they even know what they were looking at? I mean, up on that cross was a crucified king. And this, what they were at, at Jesus's crucifixion, was his enthronement ceremony. Here was Jesus exalted in the most obscure ways in the moment of his death. This man, as they were looking at him, he was God's dwelling place, holding within him the fullness and the glory of God. He was the better temple. So his body that was beaten and bloody, it was a tent for the splendor and majesty of God. And that's why John says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us in the Greek Greek, that word actually turns into like a verb and it says that he comes and tabernacled among us. Jesus took up residence in the tent of a human body so that he could bear the fullness and the glory of God to the world. But did they even know what they were looking at at Calvary? This wasn't just a crucified king, but this was their forever high priest. But there this priest was covered in blood but not of animals, but his own blood. The sacrifice that this priest brought was his own body. We said that he was the image of the father, but here he is and his image is so marred. It is so marred from the thorns, the whips and the nails. Guys, it's not just that he doesn't really look like a God at this moment. He does not even look like a man. That's what it says in Isaiah. He is not even recognizable. As they looked at this exalted son, exalted in the sense that he is up high on a cross, do they even know what they're looking at? I mean, didn't we read that he's the beloved son, right? Was that just two, three weeks ago where we were taken to Jesus's baptism? I mean, recall those details with me, guys. The baptism was Jesus's anointing as king. And what happened as he comes out of the water What happened to the skies? They opened and a voice comes from heaven, the voice of the Father, and it affirms him as the beloved son, as the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove rests on him. And now, now on Calvary, here is Jesus and the sky does not open to him, but it turns dark as if it's closing. And although he cried out from the cross, although his voice came from the cross and went up to heaven, he got no reply. He got silence. Because this beloved son who previously clung to the headship of God, the fatherhood of God, he has now traded it in to be a child of wrath. Because the son, let's say it again, who had previously clung to the headship and the fatherhood of God had now traded it in that he might be a child of wrath. The firstborn became the firstborn lamb, the pure spotless lamb. By forgiving sinners, by taking our sins upon him, he absorbed all of God's wrath. And never again would the people of God have to make these mundane duties of animal sacrifice. This is his enthronement ceremony, a cross. 
This is where he would be crowned as king. This is how his kingdom would come to earth, through suffering. By means of a cross, the kingdom has come. So now what? We have watched as the Old Testament has told us of promises made. And then we have seen how the New Testament is the promises kept. But what does it mean for us? Now what? Well, because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, a new covenant has come. That's why you and I don't have to go to a temple somewhere. That's why we don't have to make sacrifices to wonder if our sins are forgiven. We are in a new covenant. After Jesus' death and resurrection, he returned to heaven as the ruling king and he sent his spirit to live inside of his believers. Guys, so those of us who are in Christ, what that means, this is really big news for us. That means that now we share in his identity. And what did we see about his identity this week? It's that he housed the glory of God. So we now house the glory and the power and the wisdom of God. You guys looked in 2 Corinthians 5. It showed us that because we are reconciled to God, we then are given this union with Christ and a ministry. What was that ministry that we are given according to 2 Corinthians the ministry of reconciliation. You guys know this. Guys, could we just take a second and note that this union with Christ and this ministry, this job, this purpose, that these were given to us? Almost like as if we were sleeping, like Abraham or Jacob, how Abraham slept through this covenant ceremony last week and how we saw Jacob sleeping and dreaming as God showed him how he could receive the nearness of God. They were given to him. There is no labor, there is no toiling, there is no earning it. And so now, where are we today, guys? If we are in Christ, then we are like little houses of reconciliation, just walking around town. We are these little temples, these little points of intersection between heaven and earth. Do you know that you are called a royal priesthood? That you are called a holy temple? These phrases that were once saved for the Jewish people now extend to us because of the mystery of Christ. But let's not fall short of application by an inch. Here's where I personally needed to tease this out a bit. I've heard many pastors and authors say that we are reconciled to reconcile. So you and I are the means of reconciliation. So that means that when I come into a situation, when you come into a situation that is chaotic because of selfishness, pride, or abuse, you come in and you create order and peace and life. If we were reconciled to reconcile, then that means that we come into situations that are very prone to bitterness and hardness, and we bring sweetness and tenderness. So guys, let me be specific. Can I ask you tonight, is there someone in your life that is tough to love?
Is there someone in your life that you need to forgive? Maybe more importantly, is there someone in your life that you need to re-forgive and re-forgive? And one more time. Who is it, ladies? Don't yell it. (laughs) Maybe write it down. Who is it in your life that you calculate, you measure out how much grace they will get? Who is it in your life that you are bitter towards? Maybe someone that you're feeling distanced from. You know, that, that bitterness, it's like a wedge that just keeps growing and deepening and distancing you from someone else. Guys, big picture, if the distance between God and us could be closed, if that gap could be closed, then the distance between us and that person you're thinking of can be as well. If our relationship with a holy God can be mended, then so can the lesser offenses. But I do wanna add in a caveat here. If you remember what we talked about last week, ladies, there's just the sobering truth that we cannot control people. So you can't control the person that you're thinking about right now. That person that you want to attempt reconciliation with They might not be up for that. It might just be that they're not even with us anymore. Ladies, it's not about trusting that other person to make amends, it's about trusting God enough to make amends. Maybe that person isn't approachable, maybe that person is so hurt or so unhealthy that you actually can't draw near to them right now but that does not get us off the hook of our identity as ambassadors. We still have this identity as co-heirs with Christ to be a minister of reconciliation. So what that means, if that's not actually someone that you can go and talk to, you still every day can wake up and say to your high priest, I forgive them, I forgive them. We can still confess our bend towards bitterness. We can still confess to the people around us that we are prone to anger or that we're prone to not believe that this person will ever change. We have a great high priest who knows us, who loves us, who has been where we are. We still have the same identity to be ministers of reconciliation. So ladies, we live in Christ's kingdom, right? His kingdom has come to earth. He is the king and we are his royal servants. We are the royal priest. His kingdom is here, but not fully. It will come in a fuller version soon. But when I forgive someone, when you forgive and when we all re-forgive, then what we are doing is we're ushering in God's kingdom. So when we show mercy, when you show kindness, when I am gentle, when we bring in the person who is knee deep in shame and guilt, what we are doing in that moment is we are bringing in a pocket of heaven to earth. 
when we implore our sisters and our coworkers and our children to make it right with God, we are receiving the kingdom of God. And we do this not because we're awesome, not because we're strong-willed or feisty, guys. We do this because we share in Christ's identity. Ladies, we saw in Colossians 2 that we have been filled in Christ. So march this out with me. We saw that God dwells in Christ and then we hear that we dwell in Christ. That means that you have what you need to fulfill your identity. You can bring reconciliation to a broken world. You have the power and the presence and the wisdom of God inside of you. You have what you need to obey in this way. You do, don't doubt it. You can forgive, you can start over, you can be kind, you can extend mercy, you can humble yourself. Let's pray. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, would you lift our gaze to who Christ truly is and may it never lose its wonder. May we see him as the greater and more perfect tent. May we see him as the forever king, the high priest, the perfect lamb, our single sacrifice for all time. God, would you give us the strength and the will and the confidence to do what we need to do to take your scripture and to get it on the ground and to be different tomorrow than we were today and would we at all times be filled with the hope of the gospel. It's in your name we pray, amen.